1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I don't want to drink any. I right, Well, I'm just going to keep it, keep it handy just well, in case. Well, I'll just have a little. Just- <laughs>
2: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I am Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And Trisha, I'm a little worried about the
3: quality of your voice this morning. How you doing, buddy? I'm okay. I lost my voice. It was a run-in with a sea witch.
2: A sea witch. You don't feel sick, you just sound sick. Yeah, I'm totally fine. Don't worry, everybody. Okay, so I'm hoping that maybe we can warm up your vocal cords a little bit before starting this episode with something very special that is actually, like, very close to the heart
3: of our guest this week, too. Oh, yeah, I see this bottle.
2: (laughs) So our guest this week is John Hodgman who you may know as the PC from the Apple commercials. He also was on The Daily Show for a while. He also has a podcast now called Judge John Hodgman. I love that show. We're going to talk to him about his new book, and then we're going to talk to him about his love of this very special liqueur called Malort.
3: Chicagoans may be more familiar with this than non-Chicagoans.
2: But let's talk about it after you have some, because I think maybe that will help you.
3: This is a 21 and up. Whoa, that's a pour.
2: I mean, is that too much? Should I pour some in this other cup?
3: All right, I'm following you.
2: All right, I'll pour a little bit in this cup and then do a little more in here. I don't know, man. I mean, it is nine in the morning. Justin, you're gonna get some too. Our producer here,
3: twenty-one and up show this week, folks.
2: <laughs> All right, cheers. Oh, I just think it's terrible. I really do. I want to like it every time.
3: Oh, I like it. Ugh. It's making it me feel great. So
2: hot and I've got a meeting gross. with my
3: boss in about forty minutes. So let's do this.
2: Like the permanent marker breath. Yeah. element is just so here's real. the thing
3: though that's what i like about a good whiskey is when it tastes like a dry erase marker at the end <laughs> Oh, buddy it's good i like it do you want some more no we have a whole bottle here well let's see how the day goes justin how you feeling
1: uh i feel fine but
3: you give me a lot you... <laughs> yeah johnson pours of <laughs> malort are intense
2: <laughs> oh my goodness okay well how you feeling buddy better yeah 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 you sound pretty good yeah Ooh, it's moving down into my chest now now it does feel pretty good, actually. I'm not mad about it anymore. I'm complacent. The Malord has rendered me complacent.
3: You took one <laughs> half of one sip. Okay, anyway, And I drank two solo
0: cups. I
2: think we should get to it. Are you ready to get to it? Yeah. Okay, so John Hodgman has written a couple of books now. He had some about fake facts, and his newest book is called Vacationland.
3: And it's all about his life. It's a much more earnest book than his others, and I mean that in a good way. This is something that evolved from a stage show he did, actually. And so it has a lot of stories about him and his family growing up, spending time in Maine and Massachusetts. So if you're an East Coaster, this is going to be very warm and fuzzy and nostalgic. And if you're not, it's still a really fun read because his brain just works in a funny way. He's one of those people. So, Tricia, you
2: started this interview by talking to John about his beard.
3: It's a good beard. I find it to be fairly
4: attractive. My wife has come around to saying, I don't mind it. Uh, from an aesthetic point of view, I think that that is Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> she, she's been stuck with it now for long enough that she realizes it's a part of my life. And I definitely know that, that uh, intimacy with this beard, kissing is what I'm talking about, is no good for anyone.
3: <laughs> I think that's uh, true of most beards. Yeah,
4: But I mean most You know, – I'm in my 40s and as I've said, most weird dad facial hair exists to announce to the world, no thank you, I'm all done. Basically, yes. uh, my evolutionary purpose is served. i have have kids. I no longer deserve physical intimacy. Time for me to focus on <laughs> crossword puzzles. Yeah, puns, <laughs> dad jokes, writing that book I always meant to write.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, you did that, though. Hey, I did it. Yeah, it's called Vacation Land. I liked it very much. Oh,
4: thanks very much. I appreciate that.
3: This was also one of the books where uh, I knew that my mom would like it right away. And yeah. so I shared it with her. And when my mom really likes a book, she does a thing where she texts me just chunks of the book. Oh, nice. That she's really enjoying. And so okay. she did that quite often with this That's book. A vi- That's a high bar for her. A, and a
4: you- violation of copyright.
3: <laughs> I mean, they were text to me. Does that violate copyright? Yes, it does. If they were tweets, yes. it would be for sure.
4: She's not charging you for them, I hope.
3: Uh, no, she is not. All right. I did not pay my mother. <laughs> what is your mother's name? Marcia. Marcia.
4: This is a legal document. Cease and desist. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but this beard is not a hip, ironic Brooklyn beard, then. This is a I am a grown man it is time for a beard. No, beard.
4: I, mean, I don't know what the motive is behind it. I mean,
3: <laughs> you
4: know, it, it it was a kind of compulsion. I wasn't really on television that much uh, this year. Uh, you know how that goes. And so I'm I,
3: in podcasting. I do not know how right, that goes. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
4: So there was no reason to take care of myself physically. Sure. And I kind of wanted to see what would come out of my face. <laughs> okay. And uh, as I say in the book— I, I, the secret bearded man who lives inside me apparently is the part time bookkeeper for the Church of Satan. Or <laughs> when I haven't trimmed it for a while, more the IT guy for the Duck Dynasty.
3: <laughs> this book is about you, about your life, about the people and places you encounter. There's a lot about Maine in here. Maine is a metaphor, I suppose. No, it's a real place. <laughs> it's,
4: a, it's an actual state. I'm still
3: not convinced because I've never been there. Yeah, that's fine. And so I'm still yeah. not
4: convinced Chicago's a real place. <laughs> I've long called it the Brigadoon of the Plains. I believe that it only appears when I visit it because I am a narcissist.
2: (laughs) In addition to being a narcissist, John Hodgman is also an expert in the world of fake facts. His new book is a collection of essays, but he's also written three books of complete fake world knowledge.
4: You know, that's about a thousand pages of fake facts and absurd invented trivia. Um, And I had a lot of fun doing it, and it put me in a very, very different place in my life because— Uh, Those crazy lies about the phony hobo wars uh, and the brief time a hobo was uh, secretary of treasury uh, (laughs) of 1920s and all the other goofball fake facts that I did in those books uh, put me on The Daily Show as a guest and then as a a recurring contributor. And then that launched a minor television fame for me, which was a lot more television fame than I thought I would ever get.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Enough? Um, Probably enough.
4: No, never enough. Are you kidding me? (laughs) No, once you have a taste, you have to have more. That's the sick addiction of fame, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah. All right.
0: Um,
4: (laughs) But, you know, a a lot of those jobs felt done to me. By the time I finished the third book, That Is All, I mean, it's right there in the title. There's nothing left. And the book itself was about the end of the world that I had invented. And I predicted that this world would end as well. That was not true. Very embarrassing. Sorry about that. (laughs) any of you guys liquidated your your assets
3: <laughs> future dated a lot of checks yeah that's yeah, yeah exactly that's a problem. yeah, if, yeah. You,
4: if you stocked up on beef jerky and gold and moved to chicago <laughs> the land of fresh water uh, so i'm so sorry but uh, by that time i was just like these jokes don't feel like the kind of jokes i want to make anymore and i kind of felt like my work my work was done and now now what do i do and vacation land ended up being the answer initially I, you know, I had been performing comedy by that point for a number of years on the road, and I wanted to do that more, but I had to develop new material. So I created a residency or, you know, I booked a residency at Union Hall, which is a small performance space in Brooklyn where I live. And initially it was weekly. I had an hour to fill and an audience would come and I had to figure out what I had to say. Um, and it's hard to know what you have to say. It's hard to know what's in your brain until you just get it out there. And an audience is a, a good catalyst for the panic that <laughs> creates creativity. And what I learned, I mean, I, I came up with a lot of new jokes, but one of the things I realized that I really wanted to do and felt I wanted to do more of was just to be myself and and speak plainly about uh, my life, which is um, typical in, all, in a lot of ways, typical white male privilege story of a guy who grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts and got married and has kids and so forth, but atypical in that my... My life was, to a certain degree, hijacked by by fame that put me in worlds that I never thought that I would ever uh, I would ever travel in. I got to meet the president of the United States. I got to uh, I got to meet George R. R. Martin. That's the the alpha and the omega of my life, pretty <laughs> much. And also a little bit atypical because of my self employment and my wife's employment as a teacher, and the fact that our kids are, have no jobs; they're unemployable. We can. <laughs> You can spend a chunk of every year and have done in, in the in the wilderness initially of rural western Massachusetts when I was younger, and now more and more and, and all the time Maine, which is a real state in the United States. Is it as far? It's not a wilderness exactly, but it is it is a different it is a different life experience than living in a city for sure.
3: I was going to say, is Maine as far away from Brooklyn, even though it's not geographically, but like, is it kind of feel as far away from Brooklyn as you can get in terms of? People trying really hard to impress each other and wear things ironically, and like it feels like they're oh that that
4: that hipsterism that you describe, um, which is terrorism of taste, where yes. people yes. people define themselves by what they by what they wear, what they listen to, what they like, and
3: and only and listening develop... to things that you haven't heard of yet, right? And
4: yes. they develop their taste in specific with the specific purpose of shaming you for yeah. your taste. <laughs> Uh, yeah, none of that matters. Very far outside of right, outside of uh, uh, Williamsburg. You yeah, know, like <laughs> you know, you get you get into uh, other boroughs, and that doesn't matter. Yeah, that yeah. is you know.
3: But Maine feels like an excitingly far away place from that. It's In a the way more, that rural Michigan, which I grew up near, kind yes. of feels like too. Yeah.
4: I I think that it's a place where you know because all of that hipsterism, no matter what age you are practicing it at, is youth obsession. It is, and particularly once you get into your 30s and your 40s doing that kind of stuff, you are clinging to an idea of yourself as a young person who is culturally relevant because you know what is culturally relevant. Um, The places that we have been to, rural Michigan, uh, almost anywhere in Maine, anytime you get out of a city with a high density of young people in colleges, you find people who are very comfortable with just being grownups. They're not interested in that at all. They like what they like. Yeah. It may be brilliant. It may be dumb, and if they're lucky, they're living within their means and enjoying what time remains to them, <laughs> uh, which could be many decades. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that letting go of that that inner obligation to adolescence it's a hard thing to it's a hard uh, what's the mantle to lay down. Um, Because in doing so, it's very relieving. I don't care what people think about me or my dumb beard anymore. This is the beard I can grow. Eat it, (laughs) nerds.
2: I feel like I have not only let go of my inner obligation to be adolescent, but embraced my inner old ladyhood.
3: Yeah, I'm wondering, with your knitting Uh and your going to bed very early. Yeah,
2: my books and tea. And
3: your books and your tea. Yeah. You are embracing your inner senior citizen. Yeah,
2: I sure am. I'm geriatric AF. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Sorry, that was the Malort talking. I think that I uh, never quite clung to adolescence because I had a dad who was a generation older than most of my friends' parents. Mm. So the cool music and things in my house were like the Rat Pack and Gene (laughs) Kelly movies.
2: So yeah, you have some some geriatric in there too. Yeah,
3: we're both old (laughs) souls is the polite way of saying that we're weirdos. (laughs) I like that. As a parent who has sort of, you know, a nerdy set of tastes and there are things that you maybe love, in that moment when you're trying to introduce them to your kids, what is that anxiety like of, you know, for me it would be introducing them to the original Star Wars movies and worrying that they would just think they were boring. Well, and, that's what happened. <laughs> is it is it just that over and over again? Or do you find those moments where actually they mirror the taste or...
4: My kids have good taste. They have their own taste. There are things that I have introduced them to that did not resonate initially, like Star Wars. I mean, I I showed them Star Wars when they were my and my wife's age. My wife loved Star Wars, too. She is not particularly nerdy, but she has a deep appreciation for Star Wars for a lot of her reasons that are her own. Um, but neither my daughter nor son really got into them. But, you know, on the other hand, I was able to introduce... <laughs> I was able to introduce my daughter to the mountain goats, and that's worked. Uh, Teenagers like mountain goats. (laughs) I (laughs)
0: am gonna make it through this year if it kills
4: me. I this is probably my my crowning achievement. I mean, when they're kids, they have to pretend they like what you're. Yeah, they don't get to decide
3: what's in the car radio. Right.
4: And now, however, my daughter will reject a lot if it's not for her. But I have the, my crowning achievement, honestly, is introducing my daughter to Chance the Rapper. Which was that's not the way it's supposed to go. I, I got in there early. Uh-huh. I got in there early on that acid rap or whatever. Started playing that in the car.
0: Chance, acid rapper, soccer hacky sacker, cocky khaki.
4: And now she is basically best friends with Chance the Rapper, as far as she's concerned. And maybe it's true. I don't know. I don't know what she does on the internet all day. <laughs> and but on the other hand, I got to introduce my the weirdest one was uh, my son and I, he's 12 years old, and we just watched uh, I, Claudius, the PBS miniseries from the 70s, which is wildly inappropriate for a 12-year-old.
0: <laughs> Walls were hung with what I suppose the emperor imagines is erotic art. They depict scenes of incredible beastliness. <laughs> is but it
4: on
3: he, Netflix or something?
4: Uh, it is on iTunes. It's on the internet somewhere, yeah. Yes, I, and, and also available on digital versatile disc. <laughs> I, Claudius. Starring Derek Jacobi. <laughs> Have you ever seen I Claudius? No. Oh, get thee to I Claudius. <laughs> it's not Shakespeare. I don't know why I did that. It's about the, it's it's about uh, family turmoil in the imperial family in ancient Rome. Well, sure. Yeah. The transition from Augustus to Tiberius.
3: Yeah. No, this Caligula. is my wheelhouse.
4: I just yeah. I'm unfamiliar. Yeah. Oh, it's incre- incredible acting and incredible artifact of uh, television storytelling on the cheap. It might as well have been a home video of a child's birthday party. It's I was gonna say quality. when you
3: watch that quality of stuff on like, you know, what is probably a big, you know, modern television, it does feel like you're watching somebody's home movie or oh, yeah. a school play. Yeah, yeah. Of, In terms of the way it's yeah, lit ancient, and everything. Ancient
4: room looks like someone's weird rec room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the acting is incredible and the storytelling is amazing, and the history is fascinating. And uh, your twelve year old was into he it. He got he likes history, I think, but mostly there are certain stories are just he tunes into. And so we enjoyed watching that. There are some sexy parts. Uh, There's some uh, incest and child murder. uh, (laughs) But it's also like, it's equally great that they they have good taste. They have access to so much more culture than we do. And their taste, I benefit from their taste. So, you know, it, it was through my kids that I got to know Adventure Time, which I initially thought was just pretend children's programming by dudes who thought they were too cool to make children's programming. But then I realized, oh, this is an American work of genius that cannot be beat. It's an amazing work of art that profoundly understands how uh, young people and old people think.
0: Yeah. Attention! I bring a message from the microscopic world. We can see you when you go number one. Beware! Beware! Beware!
3: Because kids are weird and dark, and we don't give them enough credit for that, Oh, I think, absolutely, sometimes. yeah.
4: And um, through that, um, Steven Universe,
3: yeah.
1: which is
4: an incredible work of art.
1: I can see! What? I can see without my glasses!
0: Did I heal your eyes? But how? <gasps> the juice box! I don't have healing tears! I have healing spit! What am I going to tell my parents?
3: What am I going to tell my optometrist? Uh,
4: And uh, lots of music that my daughter has foisted on me that I can't think of, that I like.
3: (laughs) More with John Hodgman in just a minute.
4: Hey, everybody. We'll have more with John Hodgman in just a moment. You're listening to Nerdette
3: Podcast. That's the better version of that throw. We'll use that one.
2: Under that, we also like to talk to our guests about the thing they are obsessed with And for John Hodgman that is a lovingly reviled alcoholic beverage called Malort Which is currently sitting in my stomach right now and making me feel kind of terrible but in like a really
3: fun way Again you took one half of one sip of this (laughs) beverage when we sat down in the studio Like I feel it seeping out of my pores already Heaven and Tracy are so ashamed of you for not being able to hold your liquor better than this
2: Dude I said I was an old lady I don't know what to tell you
3: this is maybe not a little-known obsession of yours.
2: Well, in
4: Chicago, it's pretty well-known. Although I did get in a, a Twitter fight with someone uh, just yesterday about this subject because this person thought I was making fun of this product when I was lovingly making fun of the product.
3: <laughs> Which is how you're supposed to engage with this exactly. product. Exactly.
4: And and this person was saying, you, you know nothing of Chicago. And I'm like, dude... Uh, I got the receipts. Do your research. (laughs) Google John Hodgman Malort. See how long I've been on this block, son. (laughs) So mad. And he apologized, and rightfully so.
3: We are talking about Malort, and we need an expert to help us with that. So we have Sam Meckling, who knows everything about Malort. Hi, Sam.
4: How are we doing? Hi, Sam. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. I saw Sam uh, last night at my book event here for Vacation Land: True Stories from Painful Beaches, bit.ly slash vacationland, bit.ly slash beaches. Uh, and we met originally at the Max Fun, Very, Very Fun Day here in Chicago uh, earlier this year. Nice yeah, to see you again. it was wonderful. Yeah,
1: thank you. Say for the listeners what your job is. So my job title is director of marketing for Carl Jepsen Company, maker of Jepsen's Malort.
4: And say for the listener what Malort is. I could, but I had some last night and no longer feel like speaking.
1: Okay. <laughs> so in its like most basic terms, it's a, a Swedish style liqueur. Uh, that's flavored with wormwood. Originally would have been used in Sweden for the treatment of stomach bugs, tapeworms, uh, so on and so forth. Basically anything for the stomach. So digestive is is completely common. Or it might be enjoyed kind of uh, in a tall, skinny glass as a cordial when guests would come over and all that stuff. It's a very non-cordial cordial, cordial, as I would describe it.
3: (laughs) I see what you did there.
1: Yeah. And I appreciate it. And it was was believed that these things were medicine. Yeah. The reason why it was so big in Chicago is because during Prohibition, there was like a legal loophole in the Volstead Act that you can prove that if you were medicinal, uh, the feds wouldn't bother you too much.
3: And that's why Malort was able to survive.
1: I did not know that. Correct.
4: If if you told me that before, I did not remember. We
3: were drinking a lot of Malort the last time we talked. Well...
4: That, that was an error that we will repeat.
1: <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, apparently it was said that when uh, Carl Jepsen actually had a small distillery that the feds would stop by every couple of months to kind of shake him down. And uh, they would – if they had some like new guys in the force, they would have them taste the Malort and they would be uh, pretty well convinced that what we were making was non-recreational. And they kind of let us go on our way.
3: Uh (laughs) No one would drink it for fun. It tastes too bad.
1: That is the barometer. It's a non-recreational spirit.
4: Sam, how many times have you been on the Nerdette podcast?
1: This would be number two for me.
4: All right. So you already explained to the listeners the unlikely way you found your job. As head of public relations and social media for the
1: Carl Jepson's Malort Co. Well, yeah. but that
3: that tape, by the way, was lost to the Nerdette listeners. Only the people who were in that room that day have ever actually heard oh. the story. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: like the Jerry Lewis Elvis Presley session that no one ever heard. Um, <laughs>
3: exactly like this that. is million dollar Precisely string quartet. Like it's a musical we're doing about yeah. a thing that nobody else got to experience firsthand. Got
1: yeah. it. Well, I'll, I'll do the uh, the three minute version. So let's I, try one minute. Okay, one minute. Okay, <laughs> I'll I'll leave out uh, any incriminating elements, but. Um, I liked Malort, liked it since the moment I had it, uh, realized that You were but a child. Just but a child <laughs> at that point, <laughs> a bearded child. And then, um, yeah, there was no Twitter for, for Malort. There was no Facebook for Malort. So I just kind of went online to see what handles were available and realized that I could get the at Jepson's Malort uh, on all social media. So I kind of foolishly just grabbed it and then started doing posts kind of without their permission And eventually it got so kind of out of hand that I was approached by the company in a very negative way. They were basically suing me for copyright infringement. Um, But upon meeting me, um, they realized that I wasn't a con man. I was just a helpless nerd that was looking to help out. So they figured it was cheaper to hire me than it was to, like, bring an actual cease and desist to me. That's fantastic. Yeah. You blackmailed them. (laughs) I did. I did.
3: Into a job. Yeah. I think we should, before we get too far along, we should have each of you describe what Malort tastes like. Because you've mentioned what it's made of. But I would like John to start as the enthusiast but not professional Malort drinker. I always say that it tastes like a
4: delightful, heady blend of pencil shavings and shame. It has... Here, give me a little. I don't like you taking out those little shot glasses. (laughs) Just give me the bottle.
1: Right off the (laughs) the teat.
4: That's the only way I drink it. That's true. There you go. I I, I became interested in Malort uh, back, obviously, before... It had a Twitter handle back before yeah. there was Twitter. 2007-ish. Right. Yeah. And it, I was doing a show, a, a live show in New York, and, and uh, themed to Chicago, because I had never been. And all these friends had moved from Chicago to New York. And all they could talk about was, like, how great and livable and authentic Chicago was. And that's like, that place doesn't exist. You're just, <laughs> <laughs> you're just telling a story about some, some urban utopia on the plane. That plains. cannot
3: be the rent for that two-bedroom apartment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
4: And and I, I was poking around on the early internet and learned about this this spirit Malort, and I'm fascinated with things that are still regional in an increasingly non-regional country. Yeah. Uh, so I ordered some and drank some. I'm like, oh my god, what is this? And here's I'm going to do it again now. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. So, burning. All right. Mm-hmm. There we go. <laughs> Uh, it it has a, a a sweet and very caramel flavor um, that is initially offset very nicely by a lot of bitterness, yep. which is the the wormwood at work. Yep. And then as the initial sweetness goes away, that wormwood just uh, domain squats on your tongue.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the the avocado turns brown pretty quick. Yeah, you know?
4: and that ends up having a kind of. Like ashtray kind of.
1: Yeah, astringency. Yes, yeah. And funkiness it, to it. And it hangs on for about like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, one of my friends joke that he doesn't have a timer in its a kitchen, so he'd bake cookies and then just do a shot of Malort. And when the flavor was gone, he knew it was time to take out the cookies. That's
4: pretty good. Pretty good story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's that lingering effect that gives it its reputation. Yeah. And, you know, since I essentially introduced Malort to the rest of the country. Yep. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> there, they're, That's not entirely true, but I do, I do talk about it a lot. And I talked about it a lot when I started doing shows here in Chicago, and people would always, from the beginning, there would always be at least one bottle at the, at the stage when I got on stage, long after that had been funny or good for me, and <laughs> and I would share, I would drink from the bottle and and send it around the room and then drink from it again, and I've never gotten sick. Whatever's in there is killing all germs.
1: Yeah, I will say. Um, the, the first time I had heard of you, John, uh, was about about the time two thousand and seven, yeah. and they said that you would, would get a bottle of Malort and take the cap and just throw it into the crowd, and then hand the bottle out and say, you know, the show doesn't start until it's gone. Basically, <laughs>
4: that you know, legend takes its own life. That's true, but, uh, but I, I would definitely start the show. Yeah, but but, but throwing <laughs> but the cap there wasn't there, was there was an element of that old. It was the Ozzy Osbourne legend.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it was kind of like that you were on a ship with John, and he, like, right when you got offshore, he got a knife and stabbed holes in all the lifeboats, you know, <laughs> by, by throwing the cap. <laughs> so you're just kind of along for the ride.
4: Yeah, that's right. I burned the ships because we were going to colonize this new
1: continent. Yeah.
4: Boy, I just linked Malort to genocide in the
1: Americas. How about that?
4: All right. Well done.
1: So, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to try it. Not that I don't, I don't mind, know.
4: And I'm not going to have any more because you do have a cold. Hmm. And by the way, when I said I've never gotten sick drinking milord, I think that's not true. But I'm not a doctor. Don't yeah. don't don't use milord as an antiseptic.
1: Um, so for me, it tastes like my like most clinical um, kind of way to describe it is it tastes like a baby aspirin that's wrapped in grapefruit peel, bound with rubber bands, and soaked in well gin. Um, that sounds very good. I like it. Yeah, and then, but there is a lot of caramel and a lot of honey kind of in the beginning. But it gives way to the kind of the white part of the grapefruit really, really quickly. The pith. The pith.
2: Yeah. Thanks to Sam Meckling for coming in to talk about Jepson's Malort. Coming up after the break, homework from John Hodgman. It involves ancient Romans, Korean zombies, and comedian podcasts, as all good homework does. And now... Homework.
3: I need to check out iClaudius, clearly.
4: Yes, yes, we should. Oh,
0: Tiberius, let's not fight one another all the time.
2: I will never forget what you made me do to Piso.
4: But let's think of something that's newer. You give me some homework. Why? Because nostalgia is the most toxic impulse. You can't just go back and watch (laughs) that old stuff all the time. I need something new. Something new. Yeah. Here's what I'm going to check out. Okay. I heard about this. It's not a particularly new movie, but it's, uh, I I mean, I I think it's within the past 10 years. I don't know for sure. It's a Korean uh, zombie movie called Train to Busan. And I heard about it on the Dana Gould Hour podcast, uh, where he always talks about a lot of the culture that he's taking in that I've never heard of and must check out. So that's one I'm going to listen to. And you should listen to the Dana Gould Hour podcast. Uh, If you like conversations about Hollywood, scary movies, entertainment, Boston. This <laughs> is all my.
3: This is all my wheelhouse. Yeah, I was gonna say, like in your Venn diagram of things, this is like right in the center. It's got yeah. everything you want. Dana yeah. Gouldauer
4: podcast is one. Of, is one of the great ones. All right, that More is homework. very good homework. Yeah, I did a good job. <laughs>
3: This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita, and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull.
2: Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, and our intern is B Aldrich.
3: You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app.
2: Another thing that is very helpful and lovely and wonderful is if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to ECR22, BSBECCA, AMD.insale, and Lebpo1 for the very nice reviews.
3: I like BS Becca.
2: Yeah, me too. Obviously. All of you
3: are great. But B.S. Becca is a good username.
2: (laughs) You can also find us on (laughs) Twinstagram
3: is what I almost just said. It's Instagram for twins only.
2: (laughs) You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast. We are not on Twinstagram, if that's a thing.
3: Stop trying to make Twinstagram happen.
2: (laughs) This is the second week in a row we talked about twins.
3: Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Homework.
4: John
0: Hodgman, welcome to Nerdette. Why are we doing this? We finished the interview just now. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.